As far as presidents go, you can't get much more obscure than John Tyler. Tyler was unexpectedly thrust into the presidency in 1841, after President William Henry Harrison died only 30 days after taking office. Tyler's presidency and life generally are often treated as a footnote, or as unimportant compared to the lives of the political giants Tyler worked alongside during his long political career. Though he's largely remembered for his accidental presidency, he was many things besides a 10th president. He was a Virginia legislator by the age of 21, and the father of 15 children, including one that was born when he was 70 years old. He was a U.S. congressman, governor of Virginia, and a U.S. senator. He was a slaveholder, and an unapologetic defender of states' rights. He participated in many of the seminal debates of the 19th century, debates over slavery, the establishment of a national bank, the protective tariff, and federally sponsored internal improvement programs. He valued the Union, but his unrelenting defense of the South saw him support secession in 1861, and he was ultimately elected to the Confederate Congress later that year. In this episode of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, Dr. Christopher Leahy talked about his brand new book, President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler. Our interview picks up after I asked about John Tyler's early life in the Tidewater region of Virginia and the influence of his father, a prominent politician in his own right. Yeah, I would say that, um, that Judge Tyler was without question the most important person and most important influence in John Tyler's life. Tyler was very much his father's son and entered politics because of his father. His father really groomed him, not necessarily for the presidency, but certainly groomed him for a, uh, a life in politics that would be something that he could be proud of. Uh, the judge passed down his reverence for the Republican ideals of the American Revolution, a belief in the virtue of public service. Uh, Tyler got his political ideology from, from his father, the compact theory of government, uh, was instrumental in, in shaping his ideology. Uh, he was brought up with the states' rights and strict construction ideology, the Jeffersonian old Republican ideology of his father, that his father had really honed as, a, uh, as an anti-federalist to the Virginia ratifying convention when they were going to ratify the Constitution. John Tyler's father actually voted against ratification. He sought uh, alongside of men like Patrick Henry to, to uh, block ratification, uh, but then became an adherent to states' rights and strict construction, believing that those were the two things that, you know, within the constitutional framework would actually prevent abuses by the federal government. Tyler also inherited his father's belief in the primacy of the law, uh, although, as I, I write uh, at several points, Tyler was never really happy practicing law, so he recognized the law as important and, and adhered to it, but certainly uh, was not happy as a practicing attorney. Uh, you mentioned the Tidewater, Tidewater, Virginia. Tyler family was uh, part of an informal roster of patricians known as the First Families of Virginia, generally designated by uh, families who came to Virginia from 1607 when Jamestown was founded to the 1660s. Tyler's first ancestor in Virginia was Henry Tyler, who came early in 1653 and really established the Tyler family as part of the emerging Virginia gentry and really kind of launched this uh, sense that, that politics was a noble profession. What's the first public office that he held and some of the first debates that he gets involved in as a young elected official? Yeah, he was 21, um, if you can believe that. And I sometimes think, you know, 20, if, if I had gotten elected to the state legislature at 21, I don't think the, the body would have survived. I mean, he was 21, very young, uh, when he was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates. And right away, he threw himself into the controversial issue over whether to instruct Virginia's senators uh, to vote against the recharter of the National Bank. Uh, this was in 1811. The National Bank Charter was up for, up for debate in the, in the Congress, U.S. Congress, and there was a, a doctrine of instruction that kind of a holdover from the Articles of Confederation that said that at, at various points, at some times and for some cases, the state legislatures could instruct their senators. Remember, the state legislatures were the ones who elected the senators. It wasn't a popular vote at that time. They could instruct their senators to vote a certain way, and Tyler wanted to make sure uh, that he got on the right side of this issue. He actually voted to censure 
Virginia's two senators because they had not obeyed instructions. So right from the start, he you know, throws himself into the fray. He was really pretty determined not to be a backbencher. Right, right. Um, so uh, this was such an interesting read because whether or not you really uh, care about John Tyler or not, you sort of using him to look at 19th century politics, particularly in the first half of the century, and just looking at it through his eyes is so interesting. And you write a lot about sort of this transition that happens uh, right in the middle of his political career. Um, the, the country is really shifting from an agrarian society that sort of defined the age of Jefferson into a market-oriented economy that would come to define the age of Jackson. Can you talk generally about that and then sort of talk about where Tyler fit in with that transition? Well, I think the, the, two, the, the two aspects of this that are significant for Tyler are the increasing democratization of politics, and historians have spent a lot of time in publications in recent years charting the development of a more democratic politics, and generally speaking, what they've come up with is that, what they've concluded is that the process began earlier than had previously been acknowledged, meaning that, you know, right around the time of the War of 1812, or shortly after the War of 1812, universal manhood suffrage became prominent in the newer states of the Union, um, of course, this was universal white manhood suffrage. The franchise was still limited. Democracy was a relative term. Uh, but Tyler, you know, came into national politics when this was really becoming uh, central to understanding national politics. And then I think the the Republican Party of James Madison was taught by the near loss in the War of 1812. They were taught a valuable lesson that having a strong national government and a strong economy was essential to the nation's survival. The U.S. The U.S. almost lost the war, which I think laid bare the previous way of doing things and how dangerous that was. So there was a concerted policy of economic nationalism that emerged in the wake of the war, uh, national bank, a protective tariff, federally sponsored internal improvements, what we would today call infrastructure projects. Uh, one historian has called this a statist agenda. Now, Tyler comes into politics when all of this is swirling around, when all of this is happening. So he's entering politics at a, a really a significant turning point, a really significant period in our nation's history. And his response to all of this really solidified his status as an old Republican. He opposed all of this economic nationalism. He was against the bank. He thought it was unconstitutional. He had studied Adam Smith at the College of William and Mary. Uh, believed in free trade, so the, the concept of a protective tariff did not resonate with him, believed federally sponsored internal improvements were an example of consolidation. That was a word that he had picked up from his father and really a lot of uh, old Republicans like John Randolph in Virginia and others uh, used this term as a, they almost spit it out of their mouths when they said it. Uh, and Tyler really solidified his status as an old Republican, a younger old Republican, if you will, uh, by opposing all these things. So to some extent, he went against the grain of what was happening and what a lot of even members of his own party believed was best for the country. Uh, guys like John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay were big proponents of this program of economic nationalism. Clay would, in fact, even market it as what he called the American system. So there were a lot of uh, Republicans, and you really could only be a Republican after the War of 1812, at least for a while, uh, who were against this, or who supported this, rather, and Tyler was fully against it. Uh, can you, in uh, a lot of these issues, sort of followed him throughout his career, and, and we'll get back to a couple of them, especially during his presidency. Uh, these debates took place over decades, the National Bank, the tariff, uh, and would sort of pop up throughout his career. Can you talk about, I think by the time of the Missouri Compromise, um, he is in Congress, uh, where yes. where did he come down on the compromise? I think he thought it was a pretty bad bargain. Uh, what were his thoughts on the, the Missouri Compromise? Well, it's interesting. As, as the, the process developed that would eventually lead to the Missouri Compromise, where uh, the territory of Missouri entered the Union as a slave state and the territory of Maine entered as a free state, and then they drew a line at 36 degrees, 30 minutes, the southern boundary of Missouri, and said that any 
uh, territory that came into the Union south of that could come in as a slave state. Any territory that came in north would come in free, meaning without slavery. And Tyler did regard this as a bad bargain. He uh, thought that the South had, had given up too much, uh, looked at the map, and really it, it's astonishing when you look at the map at how much of a disparity there existed between territory that up at least up until that time, 1821, the United States only had control of the Arkansas Territory, which would have been the only uh, slave territory that could have come into the Union at that time, and there was a lot more uh, included in the old Louisiana Purchase that would have come in as free states. So he thought it was a bad bargain, but interestingly enough, he never got to the point where he thought it was worth secession or, or worth breaking up the Union. In fact, he talked about how incredulous he was that a lot of his fellow Southerners talked about breaking up the Union just almost as a matter of fact over Missouri. So he was not somebody who adhered to that, you know, that doctrinaire approach, but he, he certainly did think it was a bad bargain. He thought that the South had given up too much. His views on slavery are interesting. Of course, he was a slaveholder. Uh, at different times in, in his life, he owned quite a few slaves. Um, can you talk about his views uh, on slavery? He, I mean, he, he sort of thinks this crazy idea, at least I thought it was crazy, that if you continue to expand the territory in the U.S., uh, that slavery would be permitted in, slavery would die a natural death. Um, and he viewed it as a sort of necessary evil, similar to the way Jefferson did. So you can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, Tyler's, Tyler's views on slavery were pretty derivative. Um, they parroted what Jefferson and Madison had said and, and even used the same terminology, this concept of uh, what they called diffusion. And, and you characterize it exactly right. The the thinking with diffusion was that if you allowed slavery to spread, allowed it to move out of older states like Virginia and North Carolina and into the newer states like Alabama and Mississippi, that eventually you would get to the point where in those older states you would have zero slaves. Um, you know, I, I, I think I term it a fantasy uh, in, my, in the book, um, but it is somewhat counterintuitive to think that you let slavery expand to actually kill it. Um, but that was what Tyler believed. He, you know, he professed to believe in this this concept of diffusion. He definitely did, uh, publicly at least, believe in the necessary evil approach to slavery, where slavery had been fastened onto the United States by the British, and there was no real way for the uh, for the United States for the Southerners to get rid of it. Um, you know, they they wanted it gone, but recognized that there was no real feasible way to do that. Now, Tyler's belief in the necessary evil of slavery was somewhat confounding to me personally. I had a very nerve-wracking exchange with my dissertation advisor and my dissertation defense because I hadn't clarified Tyler's stance on slavery to his liking. And I think it wasn't easy to characterize Tyler as being either an adherent to the necessary evil view or a proponent of what became the pro-slavery argument, which saw the institution of slavery as a positive good. Um, I write in the book that Tyler did not believe in the more extreme aspects of this pro-slavery argument, like uh, pseudoscientific racism, and he had little patience for the intellectual defense of slavery, but he did operate at the edges of the pro-slavery argument. So I think my, my sense uh, when I was preparing for my dissertation defense is that I really, you know, in some ways, really didn't even know quite what to make of him in this sense, because he could have been, uh, at times, it could have been on either side of the fence. Um, I don't think he can really be pinned down now as in pretty much an either-or proposition um, for somebody like, say, John C. Calhoun could be. But Tyler was a better politician than Calhoun, and maybe that had something to do with it. I was going to say, he, he did show quite a bit of political skill throughout his career, and I think maybe purposely didn't want to be nailed down. And we sort of, we'll see that play out again as we get closer to the Civil War in terms of him trying to occupy a sort of moderate position on some of these things. Um, can you talk about his personal life? I mean, it's, uh, you know, that's it. That was as interesting in this book as anything else. Um, he's married twice and has a ton of children. Um, can you talk about his first family and some of your thoughts? I mean, he, you know, like many men of his era who held prominent office, he really wasn't home very much. 
Yeah, this was actually something that I consciously strove to do in the book. Um, I, I thought that his personal life, particularly the life that he shared with his first wife, Letitia Christian Tyler, and his, the, the first family that he had with her, you know, the children that he had with her, had been largely neglected. Um, I thought there wasn't wasn't much of an analysis out there on on his marriage, on his relationships with his children, and absence really defined the relationship he shared with his first wife and his first set of children. When he was gone, usually for six months of the year while he was uh, a congressman or uh, later on as a senator. Uh, so he was, you know, he was really, the, the relationships that he shared with his wife and children were defined by this absence. And, you know, to some extent, I think it, it certainly undermined his marriage. It certainly made his first wife very unhappy. Um, I write uh, pretty much at length in the book about how uh, she would suffer physical ailments as a result of being so upset that her husband was gone for so many or for so long for such uh, long periods of time, and it put a strain on their marriage. Uh, she was physically ill a lot of the time. Uh, she suffered a stroke in 1839, a year and a half before Tyler became president. Suffered another stroke in September of 1842 that eventually took her life. Uh, so they had a, a pretty difficult marriage in that regard. Uh, Tyler's first family, the, the children that he had with Letitia, dealt with his absence in varying ways. Um, John Jr., his son John, uh, the second son that he had with Letitia, uh, became an alcoholic, had a very strained relationship with his father. And so there was a lot of tension that developed over time because of these absences. I mean, I think the, the absences really did, uh, in many ways, shape uh, not only Tyler's relationship with his wife and his children, but how they viewed him. Um, by Andrew Jackson's presidency, uh, Tyler is in the U.S. Senate, uh, of course, elected from Virginia. Um, can you talk about his tenure as a senator? Um, of course, the nullification crisis is is one of the big things that uh, that he has to deal with. Um, where did, uh, where did Tyler come down on that? Well, Tyler was a very lukewarm supporter of Andrew Jackson in 1828. Uh, Tyler had actually voted for John Quincy Adams four years earlier, uh, and he had to defend that decision to vote for John Quincy Adams later when, when Adams's presidency became really the embodiment of the consolidation that a lot of these old Republicans had warned against. So Tyler had to uh, you know, issue a mea culpa and, and really kind of go to the other extreme uh, in terms of, uh, you know, supporting Jackson. But he was never really comfortable supporting Jackson, in part because uh, to some extent he regarded Jackson as basically a, just a mere soldier, somebody not really fit for the office. But I don't think he trusted Jackson ideologically. And certainly later on, particularly with the bank war, uh, Jackson's attempt to kill the National Bank, uh, Tyler believed that Jackson had abused his, his authority as president. You mentioned nullification. Uh, Tyler certainly sympathized with the South Carolina nullifiers who wanted to nullify the federal tariff, uh, believing that it was, uh, with some justification, that it was economically unjust against the South. Tyler sympathized with the nullifiers, at least in their position regarding the tariff, but he certainly did not favor their more strident view that if the tariff were not abolished or, or adjusted significantly, that South Carolina might secede from the Union. He never went that far, was not certainly willing to go that far in 1832 or 1833 when this process played out. But, um, you know, Tyler, Tyler always looked at Jackson with a wary eye, and eventually it's almost like you get the sense when you look at Tyler's career in the Senate that he's almost expecting an open breach with Andrew Jackson. He's almost expecting that his career as a Democrat will come to an end because of Jackson, and, and that's ultimately what happens. Yeah, he he um, he resigns his Senate seat. Uh, he leaves the Democratic Party and becomes a Whig, which is a very unlikely sort of uh, partnership there. Can you talk about how the hell did he become a Whig, and how did that make any sense? Well, the, the short answer to that is there was nowhere else for him to go. Um, by the time Tyler resigned from the Senate in 1836, 
uh, he had become a Whig. The Whigs were really, uh, really coalesced as an opposition to what they called King Andrew the First, Andrew Jackson, uh, in 1834, mid 1834. Uh, so by the time Tyler resigned from the Senate in 1836, he was within the Whig party, but he he never bought into the predominant ideology. And I mentioned a couple minutes ago that Henry Clay, who really becomes the embodiment of Whig, Mr. Whig, I tell my classes that Henry Clay is Mr. Whig. He's the, you know, the most prominent spokesman for the Whig ideology, the most prominent Whig spokesman and, and Whig politician. Um, you know, they supported a national bank. Once Jackson had killed the second version of the bank, they wanted to create a third if they could get elected to the presidency and capture both houses of Congress in 1840. Uh, they also believed in a high protective tariff. They believed in federal money for internal improvements, all the things that had comprised that statist agenda after the War of 1812 that Tyler opposed. So it does become almost a recipe for disaster that because Tyler wanted to remain in politics and because Jackson had so offended him, he had to go into the Whig Party, but he was never able to reconcile himself to the ideals that the party espoused. And, of course, this would have very significant ramifications once he became president. So he so uh, he becomes a Whig. He resigns the Senate. He goes into a uh, short-lived retirement. And then he's selected to be the running mate for William Henry Harrison. How did that, how did that come about? Well, there's a, another short answer to that question. Um, he showed up. Uh, the Whigs held their, their first ever nominating convention in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in 1839, December of 1839. Um, you know, for that time, having it you know, that far in advance was a pretty significant, pretty novel approach to, to presidential nominating. Um, but Tyler showed up. He became a, ironically enough, became a Henry Clay delegate from Virginia. He was set to go to Harrisburg, where the convention was held. He was going to vote for Henry Clay. But amidst all the maneuvering, um, Thurlow Weed, um, of the Albany Evening Journal, one of the, the power brokers in New York Whig politics, maneuvered to deny Clay the nomination of the Whigs in 1840. They nominated William Henry Harrison. And then when they went to find a suitable running mate for Harrison, three or four, people three or four men turned them down. Uh, they, they could not get anybody to take second place on the ticket. And, you know, most people probably realized that uh, up to that point, historically, being vice president was certainly not the gateway to becoming president in your own right. So there wasn't this sense that that becoming vice president, winning the, the election as the second place man on the ticket would actually help you in four or eight years. So they, they were turned down. Three or four men turned them down. Um, Tyler, they eventually got to Tyler almost by default. They asked him, of course, he jumped at the chance. Uh, nobody thought to ask whether he could reconcile his long-standing political principles with what the Whigs were hoping to accomplish if they could take control of the government. Um, you know, nobody really believed that it would be an issue. There were people who talked about Harrison, William Henry Harrison's advanced age. He would be 68. Uh, there were people who talked about that. There were people like Daniel Webster who thought that perhaps the Whigs should have considered that. But generally speaking, they didn't pay too much attention to that and put Tyler on the ticket mainly as a, a geographical balance. Uh, Harrison had at that time uh, been living in Ohio for a while. Tyler, of course, being from Virginia, they could you know, have a sectional balance to the ticket. And they really didn't think of, of what could happen possibly if Harrison were to die while he was in office. But of course, he does die. He dies shortly after he takes office, and it thrusts Tyler into the top spot. Can you talk about? Uh, he faces several obstacles, sort of immediately. Can you talk about? Um, I mean, a lot of people didn't think he was a legitimate president, uh, or at least should not act uh, the way a president who got elected on the top of the ticket should act. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, well, I mean, there was no. No precedent for, for what had happened. Um, Harrison was the first American president to die while he served in office. Uh, so Tyler you know, became the first vice president to become president upon the death of the incumbent. So this is uncharted territory. It's, you know, it's an entirely new situation. And one of the things that, that I write about is how Tyler really 
consciously sought to establish himself as the president as soon as he came to Washington. He was notified, he was actually living in Williamsburg uh, when he was notified of Harrison's death and had to make the trip to Washington, D.C. And he came in, and that first morning, April 6, 1841, he uh, took the oath of office and right away, I mean, the first cabinet meeting, right away established himself as the man in charge of his administration. Daniel Webster, who was Secretary of State, had told Tyler, they had talked about how Harrison had basically allowed a committee system, that, that Harrison would allow the cabinet to, to weigh in significantly on policy, on patronage matters, on things that, you know, the, the president would have to deal with. He would pay particular attention to what his cabinet members said. And in the middle of Webster saying all this, Tyler cut him off very abruptly and said that he would be responsible for his administration. He even asked the men, he said, you know, if you want, you can resign if you can't abide by that, but we're not going to do things the way Harrison had done. So he really, Tyler himself, uh, really, I think, nipped in the bud any kind of constitutional crisis that may have arisen over the fact that there was no precedent for this. In fact, they, historians, political scientists call this the Tyler precedent, where he took the oath of office and assumed the full uh, duties and responsibilities, powers of the presidency. But as you mentioned, a lot of people didn't see it like that. A lot of people thought that Tyler should just refer to himself as the acting president. Henry Clay at one point wrote an associate that he thought that Tyler would act more as a regent, that his presidency would be more like a regency in the line of uh, you know, what they did in England at times. Um, and a lot of people didn't believe that he should uh, assert his authority and his power as president. Tyler certainly disagreed, and this would, of course, come back later on to, uh, to be a point of contention. In fact, uh, Tyler was so uh, miffed by the fact that people referred to him as the acting president, that if he got mail either at the White House or at home in Virginia that was directed to or, or addressed to Vice President Tyler or Acting President Tyler, he promptly sent it back. So he would not even accept the premise that he was not entitled to the full responsibilities and full power of the presidency. So he really does assert this uh, on his first day in office. And he has no problem exercising one of the most powerful uh, tools that a president has in, in, in using his veto a couple of times. Very early, he clashes with uh, Clay uh, in a special session of Congress over uh, national bank legislation. Uh, can you talk about that episode and sort of the back and forth he had with Clay? Well, yeah, one of the, one of the things he does, one of the things Tyler does, um, he... Congress was called for a special session beginning May 31st, 1841. So the, the country was involved in the financial panic of 1837. There had been a slight recovery in 1838, but the country had plunged back down into economic depression, and that's where matters stood uh, when Tyler became president. And Harrison had agreed, uh, largely at the urging of Henry Clay, who was a senator from Kentucky at the time, uh, had agreed to call a special session of Congress solely to deal with the economic problems of the country. Uh, so Tyler gave a message, sent a message um, of where he stood on important matters of the day. He, he sent this to Congress so that they could have an idea um, of what he was thinking as they met, as they convened for this special session. And in that message, he pointedly refers to the fact that he reserves the right to use the veto uh, on any legislation that he believes violates the Constitution. So he's setting them on notice right then and there, and he, he has the bank fully in mind. He knows that Clay and the mainstream of the Whig Party want to recharter a new national bank. That was one of their campaign promises, so he knows what's going to happen. Uh, so he comes right out, very upfront, says that he reserves the right to use the veto, and really, again, he, he puts them on notice so that when... The Whigs finally do pass a bank bill uh, during that special session. Tyler vetoes it. They, he sends it back to Congress, sends it back to the Senate. The Whigs mobilize a little bit. They get together, they convene, and they, they figure out a way that they can probably try to overcome Tyler's constitutional scruples. So they send uh, a couple of emissaries back to him to see if what they're thinking might pass muster with him constitutionally. 
he's a little ambiguous. Uh, they go back, they craft another bill, they craft a second bank bill, thinking that they have overcome his objections, and he vetoes it again. And this is ultimately what, what gets him kicked out of the party. This is what makes him a president without a party, because after that second bank veto, uh, all of his cabinet, except Secretary of State Webster, resigned. And in a ceremony, uh, formal ceremony, Tyler was literally read out of the party. He was formally drummed out of the Whig party. So this second bank veto becomes uh, the, the proximate cause for making him the president without a party. And he's really, I mean, it's really a fascinating, fascinating dynamic. It's incredible. I mean, he's a Whig president, and the, one of the uh, largest platforms of the Whig party is the National Bank, and he vetoes it. It's really incredible. And then he spends the rest of the term, you know, two or three years, trying to find some political ground to sort of, um, or, or some political coalition to sort of help him win a second term. Can you talk about sort of uh, that uh, effort that he made to try to find a political way forward? One of the, the prevailing misconceptions of Tyler's presidency, for people, for people who've heard of him or people who know a little bit about what his career was all about, um, is that he was such a stubborn, rigid ideologue, states' rights, strict construction, that he was almost immune to compromise. But what I argue is that, in many ways, Tyler tried to occupy a middle ground. Uh, there's a little bit more nuance that you have to use when you, when you look at Tyler, because he tried to occupy the middle ground. He did not throw himself completely on the mercy of the Democratic Party, which, remember, he had abandoned years earlier, so they weren't too keen on, on bringing him back into the fold, although the Democrats in Congress certainly loved his, his bank vetoes. So he, he tried to occupy this middle ground. He tried to bring as many Whigs, and there weren't many, but as many Whigs as possible into his, you know, into his orbit. They were called states' rights Whigs, which I've always thought was a, a contradiction in terms. But he tried to occupy this middle ground and appeal to this sense of doing right by the country. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, I think Tyler rejected, you know, throughout his career, rejected strict party labels. He didn't really have much use for the, uh, the party labels of Whig or Democrat um, and, and really rejected the premise behind that. So he's trying to occupy a middle ground. But the other thing that he tries to do is he tries to use the patronage power of the presidency to build a third party. It takes him a while to realize that he's not going to be able to cobble together this middle ground group of Democrats and Whigs. So he then you know, basically goes to plan B, the last resort, where he tries to build a party through patronage. And he, he goes through this process uh, that was known as the reign of terror, where he is sacking Whigs who were loyal to Henry Clay, who were loyal to the, the mainstream of the party. And he's putting loyal Tyler men in these positions. I mean, so many positions are turning over that he doesn't even have any idea who some of these guys are. Um, he, you know, he puts people into these positions just because they reputedly are Tyler men or are anti-Clay men. The problem is, is that with certain patronage positions and certain things that he's trying to do, you need Senate approval to do it. So, of course, the, the Senate, is the Whigs and the Senate, are not going to allow Tyler to have uh, this way with them that they, they can build this third party out of patronage. And really, ultimately, there's no real chance, no realistic chance that Tyler is going to be able to construct a third party. Uh, but for at least a, a little period of time, uh, he, in fact, himself, he, he tries to come up with a, a middle ground notion of a financial uh, uh, fiscal bank. Uh, so he, you know, he's, he's going through various policy proposals that he hopes can win him some adherence on both sides of the political aisle. Um, but ultimately, he, he realizes he has to give up. I mean, there's just no way to really construct a third party with the limited materials that he had to do it with. Where does Texas fit into all this? I know that there's some debate. There's been some de debate among historians over the years that uh, it, Tyler may be turned to Texas and trying to annex it as something that would give him a you know, political victory to then run on. Um, where do you stand on that, and, and, and can you just talk generally about um, with Tyler's efforts to annex Texas? I think 
primarily, and I say primarily because obviously there are other things going on, but I think primarily Tyler viewed Texas as a way for him to cement his reputation in the presidency, you know, the way for uh, future generations to really regard him as an effective president. So there's a lot of there's a lot of the personal involved in Texas. A lot of older scholarship talks about how Tyler wanted to continue the the slave republic and you know make sure that things were safe for slavery and the extension of slavery. And I think there is you know that is partially true. But my reading of the evidence and my study of Tyler indicates that there was much more concern. He was much more concerned with this personally because he was much more concerned about what his reputation was going to be later on. And I think what's ironic is that here he is pursuing this big policy. At first, it was what was going to hopefully allow him to coalesce a third party and get him elected in his own right. But then it becomes a legacy issue. And it sure does become a legacy issue because it exacerbated the sectional conflict and in many ways had the opposite effect of what Tyler had intended. But he definitely pursues the annexation of Texas thinking that you know, it's going to be this big policy that will allow his name to go down in history. You mentioned before uh, his first wife, Letitia, uh, uh, died uh, during his term as president. Um, he doesn't waste any time. Uh, he he uh, courts a young woman, I think 30 years younger than him or about, a uh, young woman yeah. from Long Island. Uh, yeah. And they marry uh, in the White House. Can you talk about their life together? I think you, you even write, you know, um, he was largely an absentee father with uh, his, his, uh, his first set of kids and with his first wife. But there's some ro- more romance in this, uh, in this marriage. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think Tyler tended to put his first wife, Letitia, on a pedestal. He, he sort of idealized her and you know, thought that, that she was a great mother and was a, a terrific role model. In fact, he writes to his older daughter, Mary, about this. Um, but he idealized her to the point where she almost became uh, somebody that he, he, he was, it was not like he didn't love her. He certainly loved her, but he didn't feel as passionately for her and as romantic towards her as he would feel towards Julia Gardner, his second wife. And I think to some extent the, the age difference, as you mentioned, they were 30 years apart in age. You know, certainly uh, Tyler, he acted as if having a woman – having a wife much younger was good for his ego. Um, you know, he certainly enjoyed uh, being with her. Uh, they shared a, you know, a very strong relationship. There was a, a point during the 1850s when a, a friend of Tyler, a guy named Edmund Ruffin, uh, who was a famous agriculturalist, you know, experimented with all kinds of uh, different uh, crops and things like that, fertilizer. Uh, Ruffin came to Sherwood Forest, their home in Virginia, and was really surprised by how well John and Julia Tyler got along. You know, Ruffin had made the point that he thought that if there was a big age difference, that there would be resentment eventually and repulsion and, you know, all things could go wrong. But he's very surprised at how well John and Julia got along. And I think they had a, a very strong marriage. She obviously loved him very much. He adored her. Um, they had seven children together. And I also think that to some extent, uh, it, it was shocking to me how cavalier Tyler was about having so many children with Julia, pretty much knowing that he would not be around to see them reach maturity. So it, you know, I, I pretty much take him to task for this. And there are a couple of instances in the book where he's, where I quote him in letters, where he's he's being almost flippant about having more children. Of course, you know, he's not the one that has to actually bear the children, so I'm sure that helps. Uh, but he's, you know, he's really betrays a, a really lack of concern for what she's going to have to endure having all these young children once he passes away. And at least once during the 1850s, he was on death's door. He was very unhealthy uh, during the 1850s, you know, really had very poor health, um, so it was not unreasonable to expect that he would be dying pretty soon and that Julia would be left with seven young children. And his last his last child, I believe, is born when he was 70 years old. Uh, That's correct. You know, correct. a year yeah. or two before he died. Um, 
so he he leaves the presidency. I think he he um, supports. Uh, he, you know, obviously he knows that uh, he does try, like you said, this third party attempt and has a convention, but it doesn't work out. And I think he ends up supporting James Polk, who gets elected. Uh, he retires to his plantation. I think at this point, I mean, he moved around. He, he uh, at this point, I think he's somewhere outside of Williamsburg. Is that correct? Uh, in his well, when he retires from the presidency, he's in Charles City County, Virginia. So it's about 20, 26 miles uh, up the James River, west the James River uh, from Williamsburg. Okay. So it's in that area. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, he retires. You know, something that followed him around uh, along with bad health through his life was um, uh, he he didn't manage his finances very well. Uh, he's often, uh, as a lot of planters were in debt, but he he really is, it's something that he worries about constantly through his life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I argue that, that financial or the, the fear of financial insolvency is a recurring theme of his life, pretty much from, from young adulthood all the way to the end. He was constantly in debt, um, and some significant debt, too. I mean, we're not talking about little sums of money here. Um, and one of the things that he does is he uh, lends money to family members at times that he can ill afford to do so because if they default on the loan, then he defaults and, you know, the whole thing comes crashing down. So he was constantly uh, dunning friends, uh, business associates, law associates of his for help with his finances to co-sign loans or to uh, front him some money to pay off one creditor. Uh, so he was constantly in this, this this unceasing cycle of debt. And I think, you know, you alluded to the fact that a lot of Southern planters were like that. But I, Tyler's really an extreme case. And it's it's pretty shocking when you go through his papers or the, the papers of his wife's family and you see exactly how intricate these financial uh, details really are. You wonder how he kept it all straight, if, if indeed he could have kept it all straight, um, but some of these things are so intricate that you, you just start thinking that it's mind-boggling that a former president could be just you know, very close to financial insolvency. I mean, you know, it's certainly something that, that we don't associate with more modern presidents who you know, pretty much are, are all multimillionaires uh, by the time they're, they're out of the presidency for a few years. So Tyler was definitely an extreme case. And in a couple episodes in your book, you talk about his uh, willingness uh, to sell some of his slaves um, to yeah. to sort of uh, relieve some of his financial uh, uh, issues. Can you talk about? I mean, you know, this is this is so interesting. Um, you know, the sort of this uh, crazy idea of uh, you know Tyler clearly believed. Uh, in being a paternalistic slaveholder, and he believed he treated his slaves well. Um, but there's evidence that shows that maybe he didn't. Uh, and he certainly, when he had financial issues, uh, I think in one case he did sell a slave sort of there in that second part of his life. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there, there are at least two. Uh, there's evidence that shows that on at least two occasions, uh, Tyler sold an enslaved person. Uh, the most significant one uh, is Anna Liza, um, a young woman he sells in the fall of 1827 uh, because he is out of money and needs to finance his trip to Washington to take his seat in the Senate. He's just been elected uh, to the U.S. Senate, um, needs money uh, to get from Virginia, to get from his home in Virginia to Washington. He needs to finance the trip. Uh, so it becomes a matter of urgency for him to to sell this particular woman, and he actually enlisted the help of his brother-in-law, Henry Curtis, a man that I write about at length as being a very significant relationship uh, for Tyler, uh, particularly in his early years as a national politician. But he enlists Henry Curtis to, to serve as his agent, um, and Tyler didn't want to really get involved in the process at that level himself, so he enlisted his brother-in-law as an agent. and. He wants to keep uh, this enslaved woman in what he calls uh, Henry Curtis's neighborhood, perhaps thinking that uh, if he sells, if, if Henry Curtis is able to procure a sale uh, to someone in the neighborhood, that perhaps the young woman might be uh, treated better. Uh, but 
barring that, Tyler is willing to uh, let Curtis send this particular enslaved woman to the auction block. So the, the financial exigency certainly overrode any kind of sense of, um, you know, any remorse at, at dealing with the institution of slavery in this way. And there's, there's another episode where uh, a young enslaved boy uh, dies uh, and was seen before that eating dirt, which is uh, apparently a symptom of potential malnourishment. Is that correct? Yes. Um, there was one, one instance in the 1850s uh, where, where a young slave boy uh, had eaten dirt and uh, medical historians argue that this is a symptom of beriberi, uh, which is a deficiency of, I believe, vitamin B1, um, which, of course, you know, if there's a vitamin deficiency, that at least suggests that perhaps the child had been malnourished. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned the paternalistic ideal. Tyler certainly uh, saw himself as a paternalistic slaveholder, um, but, you know, within that that range of action that, that paternalism allowed, there are some very unsettling aspects of Tyler's life as a slaveholder. So Tyler, uh, he, he lives in retirement on his plantation, uh, but the secession crisis comes about, uh, and Tyler puts himself right in the middle of it. Uh, and his he's so interesting because as you write he's not a fire eater he was never a fire eater in his career he wasn't he he defended slavery uh and and believed in it but he he wasn't somebody who was going to fight tooth and nail uh the way a lot of southerners uh he he was critical of south carolina but he thought that there was a compromise that could be made and that that compromise could be made uh particularly with uh men uh, coming together from the border states. So can you talk about sort of his initial plan and where he saw himself in trying to build this compromise? Yeah, throughout his life, I think there's a, a tension between Tyler's devotion to the South and his love for the Union. And I think he, I think he even recognized this tension in himself. I think he was self-aware enough to realize that this was a yeah, that potentially might be problematic at some point down the line. I mentioned uh, earlier on that during the Missouri crisis, Tyler thought talk of breaking up the Union was madness. He was incredulous that, that Southerners, uh, Southern congressmen would be so willing to talk about breaking up the Union. So, you know, in that sense, he his, his devotion to the Union comes to the fore. In the 1850s, you know, he's much more concerned about what's happening with the country the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, these are things that are uh, pushing us further down the road to disunion towards the Civil War, uh, but he still favors a more moderate approach. Uh, even with President Lincoln's election, even with Abraham Lincoln's election in November of 1860, Tyler does not feel justified or does not feel the secession is justified and is willing to take a wait-and-see uh, approach to what's going to come next. So, you know, even Lincoln's election, which, of course, prompted uh, South Carolina to secede in December of 1860, is not enough for Lincoln to think about disunion. However, you mentioned the Border States Conference. Uh, Tyler actually goes to this, this uh, what was known as the Old Gentleman's Convention, because a lot of these guys had been active in national politics. He had wanted a strictly border state convention, believing that you could get rid of the extremes, get rid of the, uh, the seceded states and get rid of the Massachusetts and the New Yorks that, that had more, um, I guess what we would consider more radical Republican views on secession. And he believed that, that there might have been a way to compromise this out and, and to make sure that the Union could be saved, that South Carolina um, and the other states that had seceded in the wake of Lincoln's election could be brought into the Union or brought back into the Union, but of course it failed. And ultimately, Tyler decides, you, know, you talk about this tension between his uh, devotion to the South and his love for the Union, ultimately, as you know, Tyler chooses the South. He chooses Virginia, uh, much in the way that Robert E. Lee had, had talked about Virginia as his country. Tyler isn't as, isn't as explicit as that, but he does choose the South over the Union. He renounces uh, what he had done as president, renounces the Union, and allies himself with the Confederacy. 
And he's ultimately elected to the Confederate Congress, correct? Yes. Yeah, he was elected to the Provisional Confederate Congress, uh, was elected to the, the, main, the, the actual Confederate Congress. Um, he, he just couldn't stay out of it. I actually am pretty critical of Tyler uh, from a perspective that not, many, not too many people have taken on him uh, with respect to his wife. You know, I think that uh, if you look at what happens in the wake of the Civil War, um, his wife is uh, really troubled by a lot of what Tyler had done by allying himself with the Confederacy, by becoming a member of the Confederate government. He never took his seat in the Congress because he died before he could do so, but the damage had been done. And I think he should have stayed out of it. I think his, his overweening ambition, his desire to, to always be involved in the political game really overtook him at this point and had really disastrous consequences for his wife and his children. He, he just couldn't stay out of it. Uh, he, so he dies, I think, uh, in early 1862. Um, correct. He, is he, he's not mourned in D.C., correct? I mean, he, he is mourned in Richmond. What did uh, uh, Jefferson Davis, I think, tried to make a sort of big deal of him as sort of a hero in the South? Yes. Yes, his body lay in state in Richmond. Um, he was accorded... Uh, ironically enough, he's, he was accorded full honors um, because of what he had done as president, because of the fact that he had been president of the United States. So here you have the, the Confederate president, you have the Confederate government who was honoring Tyler. They've seceded from the Union, that they're in effect honoring him for being president of the United States. But Lincoln, President Lincoln, refused to have the flags in Washington flown at half-mast. He refused to acknowledge Tyler's passing. Most of the, the notice of Tyler's death in the northern newspapers was, you know, two sentences on the, the fourth page of the paper, you know, very, um, you know, very slight notice of, of what had just happened in Richmond. He died in Richmond. So a uh, very different approach to Tyler's death in the, in the Confederacy than it was in the Union. Uh, it's it's funny as I as I've told a, a few people that I was going to talk to you about John Tyler. If anybody knows anything about him, it's that. Uh, well, I'll ask you: Does he still have living grandchildren? Yes, he does. He, he does. has two living grandsons. Um, Lion is ninety four, and Harrison will be ninety two. He's, he just turned ninety one. Wow. Um, so yes, he does still have living. And the only way that works is that Tyler's, of course, second wife was 30 years younger. Um, Tyler's son, Lion, his second wife was uh, roughly 40 years younger. And that's really the only way that this can work. You know, Tyler's grandchildren were born in the 1920s um, and are still alive today. So he, he was born in 1790, if I have that right. number correct. And yeah, he still has little yeah. grandchildren. Well, uh, Chris, this was such a pleasure to talk to you about your book, uh, President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler. Uh, Christopher Leahy uh, is a professor at Cayuca College in uh, western New York in the Finger Lakes region. I highly recommend. Please pick up this book. There's a lot in it that we didn't even get to. Chris, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate I, it. I, 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 absolutely. Talk to you.